You can hear a little bit of the Irish tune behind that. That song, with the exception of the uh, refrain at the end, was, was written in the early 1900s during the Welsh revivals, the revivals that took place throughout the United Kingdom. That kind of became the theme song, Here's Love Vast as an Ocean. If you go on YouTube, you can see just a whole bunch of different uh, versions of choirs or solos or others uh, singing that, that great hymn. Uh, before we look at Psalm 73, and I hope you'll turn in your Bible, if you've got a hymn, a Bible from the Purax, is page 485. I do want to mention the installation service tonight for the new organizing pastor at Strong Tower Fellowship. If you're new to Macon, perhaps some of you have just come to go to school, uh, undergraduate or graduate school. Uh, Strong Tower Fellowship was started some uh, eight, almost nine years ago as a ministry that's, that's uh, directed toward and primarily for the residents of the Pleasant Hill community. Now, if you're not familiar with Macon, there's nothing pleasant about that Pleasant Hill. Uh, it went through a neighborhood change uh, back 50 years ago and where it's, it's pretty crime-ridden, uh, no marriages, uh, I don't think, and uh, poverty upon poverty. Uh, this ministry is, is uh, a ministry that we have been heavily vested in, and uh, we, I served on the search committee with constituents of Strong Tower to, to look for an organizing pastor, and we found a man who has done this work, he and his wife, Brett Barbie, and his wife, Barges, or as he says, gorgeous, but with a B. I'm sure that gets him points. And they're four children. And he will be installed at uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, you say that's an odd time. It is odd, but if anybody from Strong Tower, they need to come and go before dark. So uh, that'll be at 5 today. I can promise you the sermon will be short because I'm preaching, and often at these things, the sermons are inordinately long because the person drove a long way to get there, but I, I only have to drive about five miles to get there, so you do the math as to how long the sermon will be. Then there'll be a barbecue meal right afterwards, so if you have an interest in that work or would like to show support, uh, that's at five o'clock this afternoon. Psalm 73 before I read it, you should see there at the, above the title, God is my strength and portion forever, it says book three. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, the Psalms are arranged in five books. And this obviously begins the third book. I won't go into all the details as to which Psalms are in which books, but it's got five divisions. And you see the last verse of Psalm 72, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The first 72 Psalms were all written by David. We tend to, often the Psalms themselves will be referred to as the Psalms of David, and yet he, he did not write all of them. We have approximately 12 that were written by a man we'll meet today named Asaph. I'm going to tell you about him in a moment. Uh, some were written by Moses and, and a number of other authors. Uh, this, this one was written about 3,500 years ago. And I plan to bring two sermons on this because there's one of the most stark transitions in all the Psalms and all the Bible takes place about halfway through the Psalm. But I'd like to read the entire Psalm now, hear God's word. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in a heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Father, you've, you've told us that your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We ask that you would use it toward that end now. In Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned, this psalm is from a man named Asaph. He was a musician who lived about 3,500 years ago, and from best we know, he was a court composer in the court of King David. He was in charge of the worship music performed in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And Psalm 73 is, is one of the 12 psalms which Asaph composed. Uh, you should know that, that psalms were written to be sung. Throughout the Old and New Testament, we have occasions when it's said, like when Paul and Silas were in prison in the book of Acts, and it said about midnight they were praying and singing to God. We only assume that they were singing psalms. Uh, though it doesn't tell us precisely, but we can make that assumption. So Asaph was uh, a, a musician and, and a composer, and he composed this because he looked at the world and what he saw bothered him. It bothered him because he saw that the wicked, those who leave God out or deny God's existence or just rebel against God, they seem to do very well in this life. And the godly do not. Now, that's, I doubt if anyone deny that, would deny it, but as you look at the world and the world around you, that can be a problem and can present a great problem to your faith, and it did for Asaph. 
He was willing to admit his doubts and to try and resolve them. I, I wish that it was more the culture of the church and even our church, and I didn't grow up in a church uh, that had this, where it would be known that no questions are off limits. I mean, there's a per particular arena where those things can be asked, but, but that anything you want to ask about is allowed, and you don't have to worry about someone saying, you, you shouldn't talk that way, you shouldn't ask such questions of that, that's disrespectful of God. Uh, if Asaph were here today and were to, to say to you probably half of this, we might be tempted to throw him out. Say, you know, I don't know what this guy's saying, but I don't think that ought to be coming from the pulpit. Years ago, our family moved from one neighborhood to another. And over the weeks after we'd been there, I, was, I didn't know anyone around us, our neighbors, and our I was uh, getting to know different neighbors as I ran across them, and one day I was, I was talking with a man that lived nearby. Uh, we just met, introduced ourselves, very friendly guy, and we were talking, and we went through the normal things. Uh, how long you lived here? Uh, where are you moving here from? Uh, where do you work? What kind of what work do you do? Uh, how many children? And he told me they had two teenage boys, and, and where do they go to school? That's the obvious question. And uh, I, he asked me, and I said, well, our, our children go to First Presbyterian Day School. Now, if you're new to Macon, that's a private Christian school associated with our church. And uh, he uh, immediately responded, well, our, my kids go to Central. You know, we want them in the real world. We wanted our kids to live in the real world. And just in case I missed his insult, he circled back around, and then a minute later he said, yeah, we, we really we're committed to our kids living in the real world. Well, thankfully, I don't talk too fast on my feet. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of things, but they, you know, I have to work hard on these sermons and other. I, I, this stuff doesn't just spring out from the head of, of what's her name, you know, in the Greek mythology, but Methuselah. No, that's the old person. Uh, anyway. So I was saying in the real world, the real world, okay, we just moved here from a neighborhood where every house on the two blocks of our neighborhood got robbed except ours. I think that's because Barbara was at home in the daytime. Uh, it was not uncommon to hear gunfire at night. And, you know, the real world, the real world where 9 million people a year die from hunger, one every 10 seconds, mostly children or hunger-related diseases, where one in seven have no electricity. What was I getting? What is the real world? What is the real world? It's certainly not what's called the real world on television. All of that is fake. You know, unless it's a documentary. So what is the real world? Some people want to say, well, the real world is all economic. It's the bottom line. Money drives history. Money drives lives. Money is the real world. And so I interpret the real world through economic, my economic framework. Or it's political. It's all about politics. It's all about power. Others would say, well, everything that happens is bad. I mean, you can ask about anything, and it's bad. I mean, their, their real world is just bad, and others would say, well, everything's good. Everything's great. That, to them, this is the real world. So what is the real world? I'll tell you what it is. The Christian worldview says the real world is the way the world is as God sees it. So here's how I interpret the world. Here's how God interprets the world. And as I grow as a Christian, hopefully it's becoming more and more aligned as I learn God's word and learn his ways with the way God sees the world. 
rather than through some other grid? Well, Asaph uh, was asking questions and he was trying to interpret the world around him and he was trying to say what, come to the conclusion, what is reality? So I'd like to briefly just look at a few highlights with the sermon today and then I want to talk about how do you deal with doubts. And then the Lord willing, next week when we come back together, we'll look at the second half of the psalm where he has a change because he comes into the sanctuary of God and everything falls into place for him, okay? So today let's look at his questions. He begins with a conclusion in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's as though he makes the statement, he puts the principle like a good storyteller, almost like a children's story, and now he's going to back up and tell how he came to that conclusion. So God is good to Israel. He's saying that is a foundational truth. We have to start with the goodness of God. He writes as if to say, now I'm going to tell you what happened to me. Uh, but the thing I want to leave you with is that God is good. Before you listen to my story, hear this. God is good. He does not fluctuate. He does not change. God is always good. He's good to his people. And so we begin with that interpretation. There was a prayer some of us perhaps were taught as a child. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That's foundational sound theology, not just for children. But he draws a contrast in verse 2, but as for me, you know, he said, start with the proposition God is good, but as for me, he almost fell away from that. He went down a different path. As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. He had started in the right place, but he began to fall away from that. He almost slipped. Christians use the term backslidden. It's a pretty good term if it's describing what's here in Psalm 73. Literally, it means to, to fall backwards. It's almost a picture as though in slow motion. I read of a, a carnival ride in Fort Lauderdale years ago that had a mechanical failure, and the people on this ride, this thing began to fall back, and they later... Even uh, those that were injured said it was almost in slow motion. We were going in one direction, and then we knew that we were falling backwards. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher of the 1800s, said that, well, he had a sermon that I read entitled Little Sins, Little Sins. And his point in that sermon, to make a long story very short, was that spiritual cas casualties are rarely like a blowout with a tire. They're typically a very slow leak. And, and it happens over time. It's happened to me. It's happened to you if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time. It happened to me in seminary. I'm very grateful for a seminary education. For those that, that's a graduate school for preachers, basically. And uh, I use that education every week. Uh, I'm grateful to, to have had it. But by the second year, even though we were studying under brilliant minds, my, new, my Greek professor, and since most of the New Testament was written in Greek, was fluent in ten languages. And even though he taught Greek, he helped translate some of the Old Testament of the New International Version of the Bible. And, and every class was loaded with some person who had been walking with God for decades and who had studied and, and was, was brilliant. I'd never seen such knowledge. By my second year, I was losing my faith. 
And it wasn't their fault. It was my fault. I was not being taught anything to make me lose my faith. I was neglecting the basics of prayer and growing in Christ, and I was being bombarded with questions in my own soul that I couldn't answer. And dilemmas, the more I learned about God, the more questions I had. And not about his existence, but about his ways. And I was, I was struggling. And I was sitting with a friend whom you know, many of you know, Al Baker. And one day he asked, how are you doing, Chip? And it was said as though he meant it. You know, it wasn't just a passing comment. How are you doing? And I said, you really want to know? He said, I really want to know. And so I told him. And I said, Al, I need help. Will you meet with me? Al's a very disciplined person. And so we began, or he said, I'll be glad to. So early in the morning before classes, we began to meet. It's nothing fancy. We would meet for a few minutes. We would pray together. We would read the Bible. It wasn't a counseling session. He didn't say, tell me what you're thinking. We just did like Asaph and went, well, as you'll see, to the sanctuary of God. We, we, we got back, he got me back on track. So Asaph saw this, and he said, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Now, why was he stumbling? He tells us, I'm going to pick up the pace here. He tells us in verse 3, here's the source of his stumbling. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked out and he saw that, that people who were godless seemed to be richly blessed by God. And those who were godly were not. And it caused a problem when he compared their health and their wealth and their prosperity with his lack of prosperity. And he was resentful. He was resentful that God apparently operated in, in such a way. And this is where our problem lies sometimes, isn't it? We, uh, it's not so much an intellectual problem. It's that God is not treating us the way we think he should. And that other people seem to be doing better in one way or the other. They're not suffering as we're suffering. And, um, and we struggle to make ends meet or to get by or to stay healthy or whatever. And those who seem to leave God out they can't even relate to what we're going through. And at the source of it, at the root of it, is envy. And envy's criticizing God, and it's sin. And Asaph knew that's, that's what had happened to him. Let me show you how he describes them, beginning in verse 4. I'll just pick a few of the phrases. In verse 4, he says, They seem to have no problems. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I, I doubt if we describe someone as fat we would say, hey, that's a real desirable thing. Though many of us look in the mirror and may say, that's how I describe myself. Here's why. In this day, when Asaph wrote this, half the population was half-starved most of the time. So for a person to have any excess weight was a sign that they had a lot of food. So it was a sign of prosperity. So he says they're, they're fat, and their bodies, they're sleek. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, they're, they're free from the burdens that seem to be common to everyone else. They're not plagued by life's ills. And, and do you ever wonder in God's providence why he takes certain godly people, here's this committed Christian young person, and they die young, and he allows a person who never acknowledges him, even denies him, and gives him a long life. 
July 28th, what, three, three, um, two and a half weeks ago, is the anniversary, the 36th anniversary of a guy that some of you know is named Keith Green. Now, Keith Green grew up in Hollywood. He, by the age of, of 12, he had written 10 songs that were recorded by other artists. Many musicians, and, and he, he played in a Broadway show of The Sound of Music and so forth as a child. And he was seen as a prodigy. Well, later on in his late teens, he was converted from Judaism. <laughs> this was a strange mix. Judaism and the science and the Church of Scientology. He's converted to Christianity, as was his wife, Melody, just a few days later. Well, he, Keith then began to use his music and concerts basically as a forms for evangelism. And he and his wife began a ministry called Last Days Ministry. And primarily it was to help the poor. And they had bought this property in Texas. And on a certain day, Keith and two of his children, a two-year-old and a three-year-old, with some friends of theirs, a married couple who were planting a church, and their six children, along with a number of other people, were going to tour the, the land to get on this airplane. It barely gets off the runway. It crashes. Everybody dies. They're all killed. So the 36th anniversary of Keith Green's death was just July 28th. Now, I'm going to name a name, and, and you can talk to me afterwards if, if you think this is out of place. Why does God take a 28-year-old and all these children and leave Hugh Hefner to live to age 91? Now, if that doesn't cause you any questions about God, I can't relate. And it caused problems for Asaph, and it doesn't sound very religious, does it? Well, Christians shouldn't think that way. Oh, I definitely think that way. Lord, what are you thinking? What were you thinking? You leave a pornographer and you take the evangelist and two of his children and the church planner and six, there's six children. Well, that's what Asaph saw. And it bothered him. And he almost lost his faith over it. Then in verses 8 and 9, he says, They mock. These godless people speak against the heavens. They have their followers, it says in verse 12. 11 and 10 through 12. They're noted. They're quoted. They're promoted. They're on the late night shows. Their books are on the bestseller list, one way or the other. And they, they're, they're oh, this is the coolest thing. This is, oh, read this. It's, oh, no, no, there's no God. There's no, it's, all, it's all up to you. Asaph saw that. And he heard them say, we don't believe in your God. Yeah, look at us. Nothing goes wrong with us. You talk about God. Look at you. What's real? What's the real world? So he concludes in verses 13 and 14, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He basically said, what has been the point of all of this? This has been a complete waste of time. What, in our day and age, what advantage is there in being a Christian? It's a pretty day. Why waste the time down here? Let's get out and do something fun. Because there is no God, and let's eat, drink, and be merry. And the end of that, in the Greek world, was, we, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and we die like dogs. That's the rest of the quotation we often don't know about. So he said, there's no advantage. That's his conclusion. 
Now, there's going to be a radical change as we move ahead in the psalm, like I said, planning next week. But I want to take just a few moments, I've got just a few minutes left, to talk about the nature of doubt and unbelief. Another word for doubt is unbelief. It goes all the way back to when God created our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve. And God created them, and they had a perfect life with God. They literally walked and talked with God. There was no guilt. There was no shame. No sin had entered the world. And they loved God since they were created to do so. And then they were tempted. They were tempted by the devil. And the temptation he used was to doubt what God had warned about. It was to doubt a warning. It was as though it says, uh, do not touch this because it's an electrified fence. And he said, it isn't electrified. The sign's just there to keep you away. And they said, no, you, you can eat from that tree. And so they did. They disobeyed God, and they died, not physically, but spiritually. That communication with God that they had had and enjoyed was now severed. And they suffered the consequences of their crime against God. But even in punishing them, God at that time promised a redeemer whom he would send later to pay for their sins. Now, over the centuries, we find God's people doubting the character of God, whether he's truly good. They doubted the promise of God that he was going to send a redeemer. And then Jesus was born, the redeemer. The very ones who knew the most about God's promises refused to believe that's who it was. And Jesus confronted them, and most often when he confronted his enemies, those who chose to be his enemy, it was over the sin of unbelief. That's what it was. It was refusing to believe what God had said. They reject the call of the gospel. At the end of the New Testament in 1 John chapter 5, it says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe... God has made him a liar. Where does unbelief come from? Well, it can come from our own selves. It can come from those around us that may want to cause us to stumble and trip up our faith. It can ultimately come, though, from the devil. So how do we deal with our doubts? When you find yourself questioning, if you're such, how do I deal with mine? Well, the first is realize those doubts exist. Monitor your own heart. And you may think doubt is an issue strictly of the mind, but it's really an issue of the heart. Christ said that out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and so forth. So doubt and unbelief lead to bad actions. Carolyn James, in an excellent book entitled When Life and Beliefs Collide, wrote, when we are not sure about God, about his goodness, his love, or his control over our circumstances, when we begin to believe our lives are meaningless and beyond hope, when we lose the energy or the will to face another day, unbelief has set in. It confronts us every day in a hundred different ways. Unbelief never travels alone, but brings bitterness and other sins of the heart. Like the bowler's lead pen, it has the power to make a lot of other things in our lives topple over. Here's our last sentence. Unbelief drains us of hope and undermines our courage at the very moment we need it. So monitor your own heart. I'm talking to Christians right now. Second, take those doubts seriously. What appears to be small can have big effects. It's like the difference between termites damaging a house and a fire. 
With a fire, you can see it. You know there's danger. You smell it, you see the smoke, and you try to take action to stop it. With termites, the sad thing is you often find out the damage is done after it's over. That's how doubt is. So talk to your, if you find yourself where Asaph found himself, I'd urge you to talk to a Christian brother or sister whom you respect and talk about it. And I hope they'll operate with no question is off limits. And you may say, I've never told anybody about this, but I have struggled for 15 years with God letting me down in a particular area. And it's, it's eating away at me. And, and, and I just want to talk to you about it, and maybe God will use us to help. Third, don't underestimate your heart's proclivity for backsliding. The table talk journals, some of us use that for uh, personal devotions. It had an article called Help for Our Unbelief, and it talked about how we sometimes discover our faith is being slowly eroded away. And, and it's not happening quickly, but just slowly. And fourth, we need to shore up the foundation, meaning the basics are basics, like what I told you about with Al Baker, to, just to pray. Asaph brings his questions and doubts to God, and he prays about them. He, he basically saying, I did not understand, Lord. How can this be? How can this be right when I look out and try and interpret what the real world is just based on what I see on the surface? How can the way things be honor you? It's not unspiritual to take those questions to God. It's not unspiritual at all. You should do that. Just like the man who came to Jesus and pled with him, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Lord, I'm puzzled by this. I don't understand it. You tell us to ask, seek, and knock, and I've prayed for eight years for this, and I'm not seeing anything. Lord, will you please? Two weeks ago, I forgot what was going on that day, but I was, Barbara and I were talking, and I, I didn't tell her what I prayed, but one morning I prayed. I said, Lord, there's, you know, I have these a few childhood friends that I stay in touch with that are in ministry, and I hadn't talked to this particular guy in months, and I said, Lord, would you, would you tangibly do something? I'm, I'm not trying to put out a fleece, but I said, could I hear from one of those guys today? Two hours later, the phone rings. It's one of them said, hey, I just wanted to call you. I'm on my way up to Greenville, South Carolina. Thought I'd give you a call. So we talked about something at the end. I said, let me tell you something. I said, I prayed this morning that, that God would have somebody like you call today. Prayer, the Bible, worship. We'll talk more about corporate worship next week. I'm out of time. Philip Yancey, I'll conclude with this. Uh, Philip Yancey was a writer that was more popular about 10 or 15 years ago. He, he uh, wrote a number of books and was a, wrote a lot of articles for Christianity Today magazine. But he's telling about one time he talked to a priest, and the priest, he was talking to him at the time when the, the, this Catholic priest over this l little church had, they had had an eight-year-old girl who had just died of cancer. And the congregation had prayed for a year for God to heal her. And the priest had prayed for a year for God to heal her, and it didn't happen, and she died. And he was talking about the funeral with Philip Yancey. And he had already done the funeral, but he's getting ready to go do the meet with the parents. And he said to Philip, more rhetorically, he said, what can I possibly say to the family? 
And he went on to say, I have no solution to offer them. What can I say? And after a long pause, he looked at Philip and he said, I have no solution to their pain, but I do have an answer. I have no solution to the pain, but I do have an answer, and the answer is Jesus Christ. So even in our pain and in our doubts, God gives us an answer. It's Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We know so much more than Asaph knew. He looked ahead. He knew the promises of a Redeemer who would come. We know the rest of the story, how he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And, Father, that through us putting our trust on him, his substitutionary death and his, his perfect righteousness, that we are made right with you. May our trust be in Jesus, in him only, not in ourselves, not in our own works. And we would pray for each of us, for anyone here who has doubts, that they would face those and they would bring those questions to you and talk to others about them and not allow them to erode them to the point where literally they have no faith left at all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.